Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We have the pleasure of speaking with Rick Rule today for the second time this month, and also David Cole of EMX Royalty. And we discuss the prospector generator model versus royalty and streaming. Rick's a big fan of the prospector generator model, a uh, big proponent, in fact, and having discovered it in the late 70s, he tells us. We also look at the market as a whole and what the EV thematic is doing uh, in this space, who are the players going to be, who are the winners going to be, and more importantly, how retail investors are going to be able to spot those winners and losers. So lots of uh, clues, insights, uh, and knowledge shared uh, with you there. And if you want to see more videos like this one, including others by Rick Rule, uh, you can find them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find detailed company reports and analysis. We've got commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities. We've got training courses on there. Uh, we've also done summaries of all the interviews that we've done just to save you some time because we know you're busy people. And most importantly uh, for us and possibly for you is there is a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe, friendly environment, free from all that judgment, trolling and abuse that you may see elsewhere. So do go and join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Gentlemen, how are you both? Super well, Matthew. Great to well. see you. Well, 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 I better better announce this for the for the podcasters here. We, we we've got uh, the wonderful Rick Rule. Um, this is the second time in one month. I'm very privileged. I'm, I'm, I'm quite pleased with myself actually. And uh, Dave Cole from EMX Royalties. How are you? How are you both uh, surviving? Do we do we have uh, any sort of wonderful stories, COVID stories that we need to uh, digest? Or is it all good? I'm pretty well here in Colorado. In yeah, I'm doing I'm doing embarrassingly well. I was born for lockdown, but I'm now double vaccinated and marinated, so safe in isolation. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm in hiding in the British countryside in, in, in wonderful isolation, um, having food and all sorts delivered to us. But uh, no, we, we thought we'd get together and just have a little romp through some of the macro themes out there. I've had some fantastic conversations with uh, Dave with regards to royalties, which have led on to other things. You know, fascinating. Rick, as always, uh, entertaining some fantastic insights for retail. So I think today's not going to be about selling anything. We're going to help uh, perhaps um, retail investors get a little something from your experiences through your travels. And the, you two have something in common as well. You bumped into each other many, many moons ago when young Davey here was offered a job by you, wasn't he, Rick? That's correct. Uh, I uh, was looking for uh, an exploration geologist to help me as an exploration analyst, uh, somebody who had a technical background, but a commercial background too, and could, as we put it so indelicately in those days, help us turn rocks into money. Uh, he was referred to me by uh, Borden Putnam, who was one of the best economic geologists that I ever met. Uh, he worked for Robertson Stevens at the time. Uh, I visited with Davey extensively. Dave, I'm sorry, offered him a job, and he had the good sense to refuse me. Uh, fast forward, uh, and we had a little exploration vehicle that was in uh, need of leadership. Uh, and uh, all of us decided that Dave and his team uh, were the right people to be involved there. That evolved itself into EMX. But I suspect that I suspect that the time that we're talking about was, Dave. I don't know, twenty years ago, twenty-five years ago. 
Um, uh, 20, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. why did why'd you turn them down? <laughs> you know, I was having a lot of fun exploring for gold in the jungles of Indonesia, working for Newmont Mining Corporation at that point in time. And uh, that was pretty exciting. Um, exciting point in my career was, was really difficult. It was an extraordinarily difficult decision, but I will say, I think it all worked out appropriately. <laughs> I was about to say, did you find the right guy, Rick? Did you find someone to fit the bill? You know, I, I have to say very immodestly, uh, I have superb tastes in geologists. Yeah. Uh, I am uh, the best investor that I ever met uh, in terms of extracting knowledge from geologists. I have hired scores of them. Uh, and my return on capital employed uh, extracting intellectual capital from geologists is immodestly the best I've ever seen. So, you, nice work. Dave and I have had this comment. We had this discussion doing one of the first interviews that we did. You, you described uh, one of your uh, geologists as an economic geologist. And I think I ribbed you a bit and said, uh, <laughs> I didn't know. Those were the less expensive ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and I, I think that, you know, and you did go on to describe what you meant by that. And so, you, in fact, there's probably, probably one for you, Rick, because we, we've talked about it, is when, when you're looking at a job, what are you looking for? They're going to be this well-rounded individual giving you what you want, but what's your expectation of them? The, the great geologists, first of all, uh, don't try to impose their model on the rocks. They spend time in the district before they start swinging a hammer. Uh, They look at the configuration of the range. They look at the configuration of the structure. They look at the configuration of the alteration pattern. Uh, They don't take the sort of lunacy that they were spoon fed at the University of British Columbia or the Colorado School of Mines or wherever they were from and try and impose uh, a standard model on a piece of dirt. They let the dirt Uh, begin to explain the model to them. Uh, While great geologists all have good academic background in geology, uh, you learn that they're less interested in hydrogeology or volcanology than they are finding economic deposits. Uh, They are commercially as well as academically driven. The really good geologist too understands that he or she are going to be wrong many more times than they're right. So they are very quick to kill a project if they think that, uh, even if they think that there might be economic uh, rock there, but if they understand that they themselves don't have the ability to unlock that, that's really, really, really important. So many times I've seen junior companies raise $10 million, <clears throat> prove conclusively that their exploration thesis is wrong after the expenditure of a million and a half dollars, and then can spend, continue to spend the eight and a half million dollars in some vainglorious attempt uh, to uh, you, you know, salvage the problem as though they drilled their worst hole first. A, a really good uh, economic geologist Uh, develops a thesis from facts on the ground, Uh, develops uh, either by himself or herself or in conjunction with peers who have specific expertise, an efficient way to test the thesis, uh, and is honest in assessing the results of the test. It's okay to pivot if there is sufficient data that suggests 
that a pivot is worthwhile, but a really, really, really good economic geologist is very quick to kill a project. But they are sometimes constrained, sometimes restrained by other factors, such as their own financial position. It's a job. They're talking themselves out of a job. They've got other management who speak for the company and don't necessarily listen to them. So the the key word you said there was honest. You used the word honest. And and, and I think that perhaps sometimes is lacking in even some of the reporting. And I'm talking about stuff that gets signed (laughs) off. Yeah. Yeah. You you know I'm right, right? Because you must be be afraid of uh, offending your sponsors. You're being far too generous. (laughs) I have no sponsors. Dishonesty is ubiquitous in the sector. I, I should be looking for sponsors, but uh, yeah, I, I think they're slightly scared off by the, the, the degree of honesty that that we that we implore and demand. But it's but that's a problem because then that scars the whole industry. There there is too much white noise, which is hard to decipher. And this program, I think, is for retailers to you know be able to you know lift up the the covers, peek behind the curtains, and and understand what is and is not important. Um, Dave, um, let's talk about prospect generating because that you know that's that's you know where you began, and you know Rick's a big fan. In fact, we, we when we spoke with Rick last time out, he was. He was espousing the, the fact that he was one of the, the one of the biggest fans back in the oh I'm going to go which decade were you when you identified it as having potential? Remind me, right? Me? Yeah, remind uh, me. I, I I was taught it in the oil and gas business in the 1970s. I'm embarrassed to say. Right. Okay. I didn't want to. I didn't want to go too far forward or too far back there. But Dave, you you've made money. You've created wealth in this space, and it requires. It's essential to have economic geologists. Honest geologists, um, and you've got to you've got to you've got to control that, but you've also got to give them freedom to report that properly because it's only going to be damaging to you down the line. So, tell us a little bit about how you go about finding these economic geologists of yours. Well, you're hitting the nail on the head um, with respect to the, the how do you approach the prospect generation business model appropriately, or the entire exploration sector for that matter. And it's people first. Um, that's our alpha, and you know, we call it juice. I can wrap up everything that, that Rick Rule said about the, you know, the best geos out there and, and, and what they have. And we have a term for that here, just called juice. Uh, it's kind of hard to, to actually define what that is, but some guys have it. Um, some gals have it and, and a lot don't. Um, and so you start with, with hiring folks with juice and build a portfolio and, and execute the model. But, but give, me, give me, what does that mean? How do I interpret that? How do I know you've got the good guys? And the other guy who I interviewed an hour ago, is maybe pulling my leg a bit here. Why, why, what's so great about your guys? What's the difference? What are the nuances? Well, you know, Pierre Lasson one time told me when we were traveling around Turkey together that you can't buy passion, right? And it was funny because we were, we were traveling around Turkey and he was giving his passion talk. This is just after uh, Newmont had purchased Franco Nevada. They did that at one point in time, then Franco demerged uh, later on. So, so, you know, here, here comes Pierre Lassani. He's traveling around the world. I was manager of Turkey at the time. We're driving around Turkey and he's giving everybody this passion speech about how you should pursue your passion. Well, you know, a few weeks later, um, I quit to join the company that Rick Rule had started because that was my passion. He said, Dave, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean for you to leave. But so, but the key point out of that is that, um, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's this, Intellectual talent combined with the passion to create value uh, is uh, immensely valuable. 
Right. So t- t- tell me about the model that you have built around that. So your, your company has a very yeah. distinct model from day one. You've evolved it slightly, but mm-hmm. geology is at the heart of it. So how did you come up with the pattern that you have established? So I have a saying, more land good and more prospective land better. And, you know, our model is to acquire prospective mineral rights globally. And we do that by leveraging that economic geologic talent that we put together with this juicy team. And then we add value by coalescing geologic data sets and collecting additional geologic data to exemplify discovery opportunity. And there's a lot of appetite out there in the, in the capital markets for discovery opportunity. Okay. Right. Again, again, I need, I would like your view on this. If you're a management consultant looking in the EMX, they've been out of 18 years. Have they built the right model? Yeah, I think absolutely they have the right model. If you look at the cash that EMX has in the treasury now as a consequence of monetizing deposits relative to the amount of money that they've raised over 20 years and had to spend running the company, uh, what you'll see is that although the exploration business uh, on a worldwide basis destroys two or $3 billion a year. Uh, in the case of EMX, they uh, generate both increases in book value per share, uh, but they do it with uh, minimal dilution because of uh, monetizing uh, <clears throat> assets from time to time. It's sort of a hybrid model between a merchant bank uh, and a prospect generator. I think one of the things that uh, Dave forgot to mention about EMX that's critical for prospect generators is that the intellectual talent that is present has to have had major multinational mining company experience. It isn't enough merely to stake ground. You have to stake ground that has the potential to have a tier one or a strong tier two discovery. You have to be able to monetize that ground to very, very, very high quality multinational mining companies. So you have to have people that have come out of Newmont or BHP or Rio so that you can sell your best projects to Newmont or BHP or Rio. You have also to understand that, uh, as Dave has done over time, that you don't superimpose Rio's model uh, on a piece of ground. And if the prospect that you have is inappropriate to Rio, but is uh, appropriate to Antofagasta or appropriate to be passed, uh, packaged up to a junior, you have to have the commercial sophistication to understand who the right audience for your intellectual capital and your staking is. And Dave has done, uh, I don't want to make him feel too proud of himself because I'm looking to get 10 more good years out of him. But uh, Dave has done a superb job over the last 20 years of attracting and motivating earth scientists who were schooled by the major multinational mining companies who know what tier one ground looks like. And then Dave himself has done a masterful job uh, of moving these projects on to third parties. We have had a saying uh, at Global and then Sprott for many years that one problem with explorers is that they often became what we uh, inelegantly describe as um, constipated prospect generators which is to say they generate a lot of ideas. They come in, but they never seem to get out. Uh, And what you see with really good prospect generators is that they take ideas, they develop a thesis that that can be described. They determine 
who that thesis is appropriate to, and then they go sell that thesis to the appropriate party. I would suggest that that's responsible for the success of EMX. Yeah, the rubber meets the road in selling assets. And of course, you have to acquire good ones to be able to sell them. Uh, but uh, a lot of prospect generators acquire assets that they're very proud of, but they don't get them sold. Or when they do sell them, they, they don't have the best commercial terms. That's been an area of focus for us over the last uh, 18 years now, is get these projects sold and make sure it's an accretive deal. So, and I'd ask this one of Rick, um, rather than you, Dave, um, is there are a lot of new royalty companies coming into the fold. We, we've interviewed a lot of them recently all with slightly different versions of, of, the, of, of, you know, say three models there. You've described some of the things that you would demand of a prospect generator. In terms of some of these uh, new entrants coming into the marketplace, um, how, much cre- how much credibility do you give them if they have not done it before? Is it important that they have put together a royalty package before? Or is it because it's pretty much off the shelf type um, deals, it's it's easy, you welcome these new royalty entrants to kind of keep things sharp at the top? Uh, two comments to that. Uh, it would seem that the royalty and streaming model relative to most other models of wealth creation in minerals is a better model. Uh, my recent experience has been that a better business model attracts better business people. <laughs> that is to say that the management teams around even the new entrants in royalty and streaming are a cut above uh, the average junior mining company management. That might be damning them with faint praise. <clears throat> that said, the, um, the sector enjoys such favor in the market that I would argue that these newcomers uh, uh, enjoy a sub-zero cost of capital which is to say, if you look at the price of the equity issuances relative to the present value of their existing portfolios, that they are acquiring capital on a below zero cost terms. I'm not of a habit uh, of writing uh, below zero cost cost of capital checks. So what I look for in the new entrance is a definable competitive advantage. I look, look for something in their business plan that is different from their competitors. And I look for something in their aggregate resumes, which suggests that they might be able to actualize that business plan. In other words, the fact that somebody is going into the royalty business and wants to raise $50 million from the mullets, myself included, uh, is interesting, but not relevant to me. Uh, How can they differentiate themselves from their competitors to utilize this sub-zero cost of capital uh, around a definable competitive advantage. And what is it about their resumes that leads me to believe that they can execute the business plan? So can royalty companies fail? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think it was Einstein that said the most common element in the the universe is stupidity. Uh, And stupidity is fairly evenly distributed So sure, royalty companies can fail. They can take that $50 million, uh, spend it on GNA, and make stupid investment decisions to justify their salaries. Uh, Easy to do, and it will happen frequently. And and just just on on, on this, actually, Dave, you you can answer this one. There's nothing contentious here. Um, Most royalty companies in North America seem to be focused on precious metals. Uh, It seems to have always been thus. And in fact, you know, some even spin out the odd royalty, which doesn't fit that brief. Um, but there seems to be a growing trend towards battery metal commodities. Mm-hmm. 
at the moment. There is the momentum there. Do you think we'll see more royalty companies um, being spawned to deal with that? Or do you think that some of the precious metal companies will take advantage of of their current balance sheets and start moving into that space too? That's a fascinating question. I I would say that free market forces will probably allow both. Um, would be my guess, uh, but uh, you know certainly royalty companies are popping up right and left, and they're dominantly led by financial people, not by technical people. And we have a saying that astute business decisions are rooted in solid technical understanding, and uh, that I think that's one of the key things that differentiates um, uh, the folks long term, right? You know, because the Royalties are phenomenal financial instruments with huge embedded optionality. And that optionality, most important aspect of that optionality, of course, commodity prices is on the list, but we don't have any control over that. But the part of that that we do have control over is discovery optionality and engineering advancement optionality. And that's technical interpretation. And so ultimately, whether or not it was an astute purchase or not, comes back to whether or not you evaluated it technically correctly. And it was interesting because the conversation migrated from prospect generators to royalty companies. I just want to comment on that real quick. Um, you know, Most uh, royalty companies are out there paying dearly to acquire these phenomenal financial instruments um, and, and approaching it from a finance side. And prospect generators do their thing. Many follow a joint venture business model. We zeroed in on what we thought was the most important financial aspect of the prospect generation model, and that is the royalty component. And that's when we um, evolved our model from doing a joint venture deal where you could dilute to a royalty if you so choose and said, you know, we're going to take the royalty because that's the best part of this whole transaction. And we're going to pick up nickels and dimes along the way via annual payments, uh, share payments, of course, which we've done extraordinarily well on over time. Um, and so vend these projects out for cash shares, work commitments, and always a royalty. And the fruits of the labor of a well-run prospect generator can be a nice portfolio of royalties and thus the formation of a royalty company that is then continuing on generating those royalties, which is a very different way to approach the business than the bulk of our junior competitors um, that are approaching it from the standpoint that that we're going to go out and buy royalties. Uh, And in this particular space right now, because everyone knows royalties are phenomenal financial instruments, uh, they trade at a premium. I, see, what I found interesting with the conversations with, with you and some of the royalty and streaming companies was, and I remember this from my banking days when, you know, you'd someone coming and saying, we need some money, we want to do prospect generating. I'm like, uh, we're good, thanks. It's, that takes way too long. There's a longevity to that, which we, we didn't have the stomach for. Lots, you know, obviously, you know, prospect generators do get funded. Um, so there's, there you've got that longevity. But there's a tightness there. There's a real... Uh, caution over how you spend your money every dime. The GNA is low. The the application of those dollars um, has has to work that little bit harder. So, do you when you're looking at some of these uh, royalty and streaming companies come in? Do you see that innately in them, or because they haven't been through prospect generating, you perhaps they have a slightly different culture, or because they are structured sometimes set up by financial. Uh, people, mm-hmm. that there's a slightly looser grip on the dollar? Yeah. So so I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because a lot of the folks that are in the royalty business today are what I call momentum players. And they're looking to take advantage of the fact that as Rick described, in some cases, they have a low, if not negative cost of capital, and they're trying to backfill their uh, portfolio to accommodate that share price and, and that cost of capital. 
the uh, and so far the momentum players have done really well, uh, and and those stock prices have moved. And hats off to them. Uh, we're value guys. Uh, we we're of the opinion that long term it's all about astute allocation of capital, and only buy royalties if it if it has a great risk adjusted internal rate of return based upon those technical aspects in that evaluation. And in my view, there's no better allocation of capital than the, the prospect generation, the royalty generation side. Uh, but the integration of having those, those guys with juice um, and that multinational experience you know, up in Sweden or wherever we're working, uh, out doing the generative work that also then identify a royalty that's for sale. And there are huge synergies there. And, and David Harkwell with you know, phenomenal track record in his career said to me one time, the integration of royalty generation and royalty purchasing is really smart. Uh, we were envious that you can do that. Of course, they're way beyond the point in time uh, with respect to scale for doing royalty generation work. And that's not up there bailiwick, but it was, I, I, I took that uh, comment to heart for sure. So Rick, I mean, what's your take on the royalty market as you see it at the moment? There's, there's a lot of new players. Are we expecting a whole bunch of M&A? There's, there's, it's always quite convenient and easy for the larger players with when they've got capital to kind of do a roll up, buy you know buy some of these smaller you know players, which may be irritating them, but because they may become have become cash constrained or the markets haven't moved. But in in, in this kind of bullish environment, do you expect to see any M and A anytime soon? I don't, um, because capital is available. The existing management teams will keep their salaries and their emoluments for as long as they can. It would be in the shareholders' interests and in the industry's interest to see this multiplicity of management teams dwindle. The level of general and administrative expense relative to assets under management or relative to the net present value of prospective EBIT is insanely high. But that's the way it works. One of the reasons why the investment banks prefer the royalty model to the prospect generation model is because the royalty model is capital hungry, which means they get fees. One of the things that people don't like about prospect generators is that they never have to return to market for capital. In other words, they're shareholder friendly. Now, from an investment banker's point of view, that's anathematic. If you believe like I do that most research that comes out of the investment banks is basically sales literature for the investment banks, the reason that the prospect generators are so unfollowed is because they never have to generate fees. They never have to dilute. The consequence of that is that although the overpay for royalty business model is much more popular, it's much less economic from a shareholder's point of view. Sorry? Why don't analysts and research companies do proper analysis on royalty and streaming companies in today's market? This is going to sound horrifically cynical. If uh, a royalty and streaming company enjoys a $150 million market cap and they're going to raise $50 million and you do proper analysis and determine that the net present value of their existing asset is worth $25 million and $150 million wrapper, and you tell the client that they would never overpay for the $50 million financing and the bankers would never get their fee. Uh, there's a fairly simple, cynical, and true answer to the question that you asked. I could, I could, ch I could, I could change the words <laughs> royalty and streaming for any other commodity, I suspect. Uh, for, not, I suspect, I know. Um, Dave, you've, you've made a few mistakes along the way. What, what are the big lessons you've learned? 
Oh, yeah. So, so uh, I think one of the key transformations early on was understanding that the rubber meets the road was selling projects, not just acquiring them. We were doing early in our history a good job of acquiring some keen assets. And it's easy to fall into the trap where, oh, let's add value before we sell. And we learned that lesson a couple of different times and, and realized, okay, we've got great assets. Uh, we got to hit the streets. We have to be salesmen. Uh, which is not in the DNA necessarily of, of some great geologists because their DNA is to work on that ge geologic model and find that gold or find that copper or find those battery metals. And um, uh, so it, it was, it was fine tuning that and focusing on the sales component. And then another aspect where we, where we uh, uh, stubbed our toe early on was um, we had a, a tough relationship one time with a counterparty and I thought we were right. And they thought they were right. And then I realized it doesn't matter what I think, it's about the customer and we need to make sure that our customers are happy because we want them to come back and buy more assets from us. And that was a transformation and became a value within the company. It's like our counterparties are really important to us. We're here to help them. We want them to be successful. What's right for the project <clears throat> is good for everybody. So a couple of lessons learned along the way that resulted in fine tuning. It's a small world. Reputation counts for everything, I guess, for you guys, like it does yeah. in other sectors. Okay, interesting. And, and Rick, if you said, what are sort of the big, the train wreck moments that you've seen that you've learned from? Where, where, where were the moments you went, gee, I hope someone doesn't do that again, and then you see it coming, and it's going to happen again? The, I mean, those examples are so numerous that we don't have time to go through them all. Um, uh, I, I was struck by something that Dave said uh, in response to the last question that bears repeating. Uh, a lot of geologists... Um, believe inordinately in geology. And a, a lot of them want to be, if you will, centerfold in the mining journal, a, a horrifying image, if you think about it. And the consequence of that is that their ego, uh, rather than their wallet, demands uh, that they beneficiate the project. They want the credit for it. They want the uh, intellectual glory uh, associated with it. Uh, in the exploration business, you really truly have to park uh, your ego. You really have to understand where you are in the feeding chain. And, and too often, um, uh, people come to us to raise X amount of money around a sort of a vainglorious uh, academic viewpoint of a package of rocks, uh, and they are unwilling or unable to segregate how they might actually add value from what it is that they want to do. I mean, if you, Matthew, if you took every public exploration company in the world, every junior in the world, every prospective developer in the world, probably 1,500 of them worldwide, you merged them all into one company called Junior Explorco, it would be a horrible business. Uh, it would lose, in a very good year, $2 billion. In a bad year, it would lose 7 or $8 billion good and bad, of course, conversely to market. Uh, and the general and administrative expense relative to the project expense would probably hover around 40 or 45%. Um, but it's a different so business it, model, though, isn't it? It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's hopes and dreams and jobs and different business model because those people know how to extract money from the system. And the system... We, I asked you, you know, plain and simple, you know, should it be regulated? And you go, absolutely not. And, and rightly so. 
But what is happening, and a lot of the people listening to this, a lot of our subscribers, retail investors, you know, don't necessarily, they haven't seen the movie before. They, and if they have, they're not quite sure why this one is, has got the same ending as the last one. And, you know, and, and you seeing all these companies on, and your analysts seeing these companies on, on a daily, weekly basis, you, you, can, you can very quickly assess the situation. I know my guys take, you know, a couple of hours, they go, right, we're done. This is, this is a, there's a train wreck imminently, the imminently um, uh, that's going to happen. So what, what would you say? To these to, to retail uh, investors in terms of when they're looking at say this whole set whether it be prospect generation royalty and streaming um, have one or two in your portfolio but be wary of 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 what what, what should they be wary of in this space I, I would say first of all do your own work uh, don't follow this got a hunch bet a bunch uh, understand that Pareto's law the eighty twenty rule. Uh, works in any topic, but particularly in exploration, which is to say that while the industry as a whole loses between two and eight billion dollars a year, uh, it is made legitimate and sometimes even lustrous because of the efforts of 5% of the population base in the sector. And so look uh, at juniors that have a definable competitive advantage. Mm. Uh, that advantage is intellectual. Uh, look for uh, juniors that are answering an unanswered question that's valuable. In other words, don't be looking for small minds. You might make a mistake and find one. Uh, look for people whose resumes are closely related to their task at hand. Uh, the most common mistake that I see is that retail investors own too many stocks. You know, Matthew, that I rank anybody's portfolio who's willing to submit it to me. And it is very common for me to have people that submit 80 stocks in their portfolio. The probability that a retail investor uh, can uh, follow, never mind analyze, 80 stocks is zero. Uh, I ask speculators to limit the number of stocks in their portfolio to the number of hours per month that they uh, plan to spend uh, evaluating that portfolio, not listening to broadcasts about the evils of government or the upside associated with lithium or some unpronounceable element, but rather reading 10Ks, 10Qs, uh, 43101s, proxies, uh, and things like that. Uh, you get out what you put in. Uh, and if you don't put much in, <laughs> you don't get much out. It's interesting. So you're, you're saying... I mean, they must try and get some basic understanding of the, the macro environment for whatever commodity they're looking at. They, they've got to work out what those ranges are, what the outlook is, and so forth. But that, that's the bare minimum. You're saying- that's a, the, that's a different discussion, Matthew. Uh, we, we could talk about that in terms of contrarian investing. Uh, what most people want is sectors that have already proven themselves in the market and are hence overvalued. Uh, in other words, ironically, if a company that hasn't necessarily delivered uh, value, but has tripled in price, uh, which is to say is a third as attractive arithmetically, uh, people are attracted to it like moths to light. Uh, in terms of commodities, what speculators should be looking at is commodities that are out of favor. 
uh, an industry where the selling cost of the commodity is below the cost of production, where the price has to go up. But that's not what they look for. You described earlier how, as an investment banker, you shied away from prospect generators, uh, probably for two reasons. There was no fee in it. It was too boring, and it took too long. Uh, my own experience is that uh, when I have been lucky enough to enjoy a 10-bagger or a 20-bagger or a 30-bagger in my own portfolio, uh, it's taken five or six or seven years. The losses, of course, come quickly. <laughs> Uh, so I prefer to tolerate quick losses, uh, and I have the patience for very long wins, which is something that speculators need to cultivate. Why, why do you think speculators feel the need to defend the inability, inaction uh, of management teams? Uh, I think they aren't willing to do the work to differentiate. Uh, you know, when... Uh, Dave Cole tells me about, as an example, generating um, uh, epithermal targets uh, in tertiary terrain, young terrain, or porphyry targets uh, in young terrain. I know that the old Bronco T Creek team that he has from the University of Arizona uh, is on a first name basis with most of the rock assemblages in accreted terrain in the Western Cordillera. In other words, when Dave tells me something, I know that the resumes of his team uh, mean that I should listen very, very, very carefully to what he has to say. And uh, retail investors owe it to themselves to understand enough about speculation that they have the ability to differentiate between business plans uh, on a rudimentary basis, uh, and to segregate among which management teams are capable of executing those business plans. About 10 years ago, I think I've talked about this before with you, we had a young intern, um, that's financial euphemism for slave. Uh, and this young intern on our behalf pulled 25 companies at random from the TSXV. You could argue that that's not as significant sample. But at any rate, I'll tell you what we learned, or rather he learned. He learned that the median junior from his sample spent over 60% of capital raised on GNA. Now, uh, a speculator that pays attention to quarterlies and annual reports could very quickly look through his or her portfolio and see which companies were salary maximization schemes or which companies were actually involved in exploration. But very few do. I, I, I had one today. Uh, <laughs> contact me. The, the uh, internal uh, PR person had hired a PR agency and, was, and had asked the PR agency whether they needed an uh, external IR consultant to, to join them. <laughs> and they had all got on a call to ask me if that made sense. I, I'm like, is, oh, is there any drilling happening? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it should be in the cannabis business. They're doing due diligence. Yeah, so I, I, thought, I thought that was quite interesting because there, there was nothing to talk about. So they wanted more people to generate more news. But there we go. The, the, little... now the, the, other, the other extreme to that at the beginning of his career was Dave Cole. Uh, what Dave Cole did for the first eight years of his career was tell his story a thousand times to one person, Rick Rule. Then he began to tell the story to Rick Rule and Paul Stevens. Now, this is a pretty good audience. 
but the uh, the process of uh, spreading the franchise uh, around uh, in EMX really began two years ago. Uh, you know, Dave's Dave's fault, and I'll say this publicly. I used to say, Dave, rather than tell a story a thousand times to one person, tell a story twice to five hundred people, please. <laughs> Please. So there has to be a balance. Uh, you know, there really has to be a balance. There, there does have to be a balance and there has to be a so sensible apportionment of, of, of budgets. But, um, you know, the royalties are coming good at the moment, right? There, there, there are many cycles that go through. And, you, you know, you've been is it 17, 18 years. So you've been at this a while and you've seen a, seen a few cycles. Um, what's so different about this time around? Is it just because you've been around uh, that people are going to pay attention to you or what's new? Well, I mean, the buzz is battery metals, but let's 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 uh, boil this down here. There was a significant part of my career when the only metal people cared about was was gold, and um, um, and we focused on that. The now it's the whole periodic table, and and you know what commodity is is uh, going to ultimately or commodities will ultimately become in high demand is, are yet to be completely determined, of course. But but it's hard not to be bullish copper. Um, it's hard not to be bullish zinc. Um, some people are very bullish silver. <laughs> the uh, and um, you know sulfide nickel and nickel in general. It, it, once again, difficult not to be very bullish on that, given the consumption outlook that we have. So very conservative um, um, economic, um, excuse me, mineral economist that is an advisor to EMX, Dr. Richard Shodi, um, out of Australia, Minex Consulting, does a fantastic job. Uh, you know, he, he predicts conservatively, in my view, that we will consume, the global consume as much copper in the forthcoming 25 years as has been produced and consumed throughout all of human history. And that's pretty astonishing when you think about it. it no, it is astonishing. And there's some, fantastic, there's some huge numbers coming out. I was talking to uh, a nickel guy earlier this week and, you know, we're looking at, you know, current numbers of what is it, two and a half million tons per annum. Um, predictions anywhere from, you know, it needs to go to three and a half to five million tons per annum by 2030. Okay. Where's it coming from? Where's that coming from is, is one question. And the second thing is, who'd be mad enough to invest in a nickel company, have it having created and destroyed so much wealth over the, you know, in multitude of decades? Is anyone going to do it? <laughs> this guy. <laughs> Right, but it's a, it's a big question. You can still see the note. Like even people like BHP are sort of, um, you know, they are tentatively setting themselves up to look at nickel. They're going to take a year. I think they've set themselves an office up in Toronto to have a look at nickel because they know what's gone before. So why not? Well, first of all, what are your thoughts on um, BHP you know, moving to Toronto to do that? I think it's smart. Um, I was going to say when I was uh, listening to your rant uh, that uh, the most important com uh, commodity for a company to look for is one that they have expertise at finding. Uh, if somebody who is really experienced in the Cordilleran decides to go to the Archean or Proterozoic, uh, they better tell me uh, why they know something about the Proterozoic. So the idea that a metal is in favor doesn't mean that you have a team that knows how to find it. Uh, I am interested in the big picture because I think it lowers people's cost of capital, but I'm much more interested in how their resumes correspond 
to the task at hand. If I want to find nickel, I'll go find a nickel finder. Uh, I don't want uh, a zinc team to try to find me nickel. So what BHP is doing is better than what they used to do. Uh, BHP used to be ready, fire, aim. Uh, and the idea that they're going to spend uh, a year and $3 million understanding if they ought to be in the nickel business is a decision that personally uh, I'm very, very, very much in favor of. Uh, I, I think it's the right thing to do. They might decide that within their corporate DNA that they have no definable advantage in the nickel business and decide not to go into that business. They certainly... Uh, stubbed their toe, as an example, uh, in the potash business. Um, they hurt themselves, I think you would say, uh, in the U.S. shale business. They did extremely well as offshore oil and gas explorers. Uh, they had definable competitive advantages there. And when they, I'm talking about BHP, decided to move onshore uh, and compete in the unconventional gas business, they cost their shareholders a couple billion dollars. So the idea now that they're going to sit and think for a while around sulfide nickel, I think is a mark of maturity within BHP and their board. Yes, I think, well, the location of, the, of that team is, is, is very interesting to me. Um, and talking of destroying value, um, we've got a momentum market and momentum is part of the makeup of the market. Um, and, you know, there are lots of terms thrown around, which I think you know, new entrants into this space. I'm talking about, you know, generalist investors perhaps made their money in the technology space recently or Bitcoin or wh wherever they've made their money. Or, you know, they're hearing terms and phrases which they don't hear elsewhere. So um, momentum is a big part of the makeup. But, you know, fundamentalism is, is a big part of, of the makeup. You need, you need the fundamentals need to stack up to you talked about being a contrarian early earlier uh, in terms of the way that you approach this. And you, you know, we, you've also referred to people coming to the party late and missing. Well, you know, if the price has gone up three times, you, you, it's, it's now three times more expensive. So how do people play this current market? Because at some point, the music stops. History tells us that th these things move in cycles. We just don't know how long the cycle is going to be. So what's your advice to people? We've had a good year and a half. Should people start making plans about how they, they, they look at their portfolio? Or is it all golden for the next few years? If you're talking to me, mm. uh, I've said on your show before that the junior market is way ahead of itself. Uh, and I'm personally much less exposed, much less exposed than I was six months ago. I'm looking for opportunities to get re-exposed. But I believe that you must understand momentum for what it is. Uh, I believe that you need to use that you use to, you need to use momentum rather than be used by momentum. Mm -hmm. uh, don't look for something that's hot. Look for something that's not. And when it becomes hot, use the momentum uh, to sell your positions and drive on. Uh, I need to say too, Matthew, that I have uh, another call in four minutes, so I'm going to have to drop off. But what I, what I would like to offer, as I always do before I drop off, is that to any of your listeners who would like their securities portfolio ranked, including EMX. Uh, what, what, what does EMX get these days? Sorry, just so I know. Uh, what, or, no college Canadian. Oh, no I'm sorry, what was the question? He, he wants to know the rankings, which I'm, I'm not going to oh, give. Oh, the rankings. That'll, <laughs> that'll, that'll reduce my response. Uh, I, I want to increase Sorry, Rick, response. please tell us where they can send their requests. So, so. 
anyone who is curious about what I think about various resource docs can go to SprottUSA.com forward slash rankings. Uh, and I will rank their portfolios and comment on individual companies, including EMX, where appropriate, uh, on a no-obligation basis and send it back. I I've enjoyed this process, Matt. Uh, I would love to do this again with other companies. This is really educational and really fun. This is a lot more interesting than where do you think the silver price is going to be on Thursday? <laughs> Damn it. I had that as well. Right, Rick, I better let you go to your next call. Thank you go. so much. Dave, we'll speak to you real soon. Okay. Matt, Dave, thank Here. you both. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.